Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Philosophy in Action Radio. I'm Dr. Diana Shea, the philosopher behind philosophyinaction.com. In tonight's interview, we'll discuss the application of rational principles to the challenges of real life. For those listening to the podcast, please join us for the live show where you can submit questions and comments in a text chat. The show airs most Wednesday evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific, 7 Mountain, 8 Central, and 9 Eastern Time at philosophyinaction.com. At the site, you can browse the archives for past shows, read my blog, Noodle Food, connect with us on social media, and more. Now, let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy in Action Radio. Tonight, I am delighted to discuss the idea of advancing liberty via a political party with Paul McKeever. So for those of you who don't know him, Paul McKeever is the leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. I think this is the first time I've interviewed somebody from Canada, like, woo, go Canada, right? Um, So uh, Paul's the leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. He joined the Freedom Party back in 1992, and then he first ran as a candidate um, in the 1999 election, and he became the Freedom Party spokesman that year in 1999, and he he then moved on to be the party leader in 2002, and that's the, the job he's held ever since. And so we're going to talk about how this works, how this political advocacy works in, in the Canadian parliamentary system, and whether some of that might translate well into thinking about political activism in, in America, which as much as I love Canada, I'm more concerned about, about my own freedoms here in the U.S. A couple of reminders before we begin. If you're listening to the live show right now over on Blog Talk Radio, you can post questions or comments in the text chat that's at philosophyinaction.com slash live. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash philosophyinaction. And then also before we begin, I want to remind you that Philosophy in Action Radio offers listeners a free 30-day trial with the fabulous audio bookseller audible.com. My recommendation of the week is actually a, a book. It's really a series of short stories by Jack London called uh, Captain David Grief. And this main character, David Grief, is a character who is very much like, he, he will remind you of Francisco. He will remind you of Odysseus and um, the Count of Monte Cristo and so on. So a swashbuckling, savvy trickster type. So it's a really, really fun, really fun set of short stories. So definitely recommend those. And he's, he's on the South Seas. So those are some of my favorite stories from Jack London anyway. Now to check out this free 30-day trial, you just go to audibletrial.com slash PA. It's a win for you. It's a win for us. And so we appreciate, we thank all of you guys who have checked out Audible and checked them out through that link for us. Okay. So let's get started. Welcome, Paul McKeever. No, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so, I'm so delighted. I've been, I've been, you've been on my list of people to, to interview because I've been thinking, oh, he's going to have some interesting things to say here, and, and I'm pretty sure I'm not, I'm not wrong about that. Well, I'll try to deliver. <laughs> so those of us in the U.S., we are slightly ignorant of how government works in other countries, so, and this includes me, right? So, so I think let's start off with just a short lesson on the parliamentary system in Canada. What's the basic structure of the government? How do the, how do the elections work? Well, uh, although we have a queen and and her representative in in the in each uh, province, is like a province is like a state. Uh, we have a federal system, so we have a federal government just like you do, and we have uh, ten provinces just like you have fifty states. And uh, you have governors. Our equivalent would be called a premier. Um, effectively, would be called the premier, and the premier gets appointed. Uh, because he happens to be or she happens to be the leader of the political party having the greatest number of seats in our legislative uh, assembly. 
Now, uh, we have in Ontario uh, 107 ridings or what are you would call electoral districts. And uh, basically, there's an unlimited number of parties. It, it doesn't take much to register one in Ontario. And um, the parties will run one candidate in each riding, or at least in as many of the 107 ridings as they can manage to get candidates for. And whichever candidate in a given electoral district has the most votes, that person wins the seat. Even if there, I mean, even if there had only been 20 votes, the person with, you know, say 11 uh, votes would be the person who wins the seat. Uh, so this is this is a first past the post system like we have in the U.S. and not the list system like there are in some some European parliamentary systems, right? That that's correct. Okay. And, and we might we might in the end, you know, you t- tally up all of the seats held by each party. If one party has at least 50 percent plus one of the seats, then they form what is called a majority government. And they basically can run roughshod over the entire um, workings of the, of the legislature. But if they lack 50 percent plus one percent, if they simply have the greatest number of seats, but they haven't passed that threshold yet of being better than 50 percent, then we have what's called a minority parliament. And that's what we actually have right now in, in Ontario, minority, a minority government. And that requires then the cooperation of other MPs from other parties in order to get budgets passed. And if they can't get the budget passed, effectively, there's what is called a lack of confidence in the government and they have to have a new election. Ah, okay. So, mm-hmm. so there's some similarities and differences, some similarities and differences. And these will actually be relevant for, for our talk about your actual political activism and how that works. So let's just get, let's just lay out another bit of groundwork here. What is your political philosophy? What kind of government do you think are you are you aiming for as a as a political activist here? What kind of government do you think is best? Well, uh, we we've actually taken that philosophy and boiled it down to four concretes that we represent in a logo that we have. And it reads reality, reason, self and consent. So we address the metaphysics, the epistemology, the ethics and the politics, although we don't expect anybody in the electorate actually catch on to what we're talking about. But in terms of reality, we want a government that when it makes decisions, uh, it, you know, makes decisions based on evidence, physical evidence, ultimately, uh, not upon such things as uh, belief in the supernatural or prayer or divine revelation, that kind of thing. When we uh, talk about reality, we mean reason, we mean Oh, sorry, not re- reality. Uh, when we talk about reason, we mean logic. In other words, the government ha- should only make logical decisions rather than ones based on, you know, majority whim or faith or what have you. When or we talk about... We have to do it for the children. <laughs> yeah, that's right, you know. Appeals <laughs> to emotion and so that's on. That's right. Yeah. Or, you know, or these whole, you know, you often hear the call that we live in a Judeo-Christian society and whether or not that might be historically true... Um, what we're looking for in Freedom Party is a government that says that's all nice and fine, but if what you want is not logical, the government shouldn't be doing it. Um, When we talk about self, what we mean is, of course, that the government should keep in mind that the purpose of the each person's each person that they're governing, the uh, the purpose of their life is to pursue their own happiness first and foremost, not to be some kind of slave for their neighbor. And then when we talk about um, uh, consent, what we mean is that the government's role is to prevent every individual uh, from taking any other individual's life, liberty, or property without that person's consent. And that's really the the nuts and bolts, if you know, sort of Ayn Rand standing on one foot type version of uh, of what Freedom Party wants. It's a focus on what how government should make decisions. That's that's what we really uh, focus upon. 
Well, so that's obviously something that I could get behind. Um, tell us then a little bit about more about the workings of the Freedom Party of Ontario. When was it formed? What has been your involvement in it? Yeah, it, it was formed. Um, well, what happened was there was a pre-existing party that had, by collecting 10,000 signatures, registered itself under the old regime of the old legislative regime, had become a registered, officially registered party. That was in 1980. But that party uh, basically failed. And rather than just throwing away its registration, it, it offered the registration to two people who were in London, Ontario, Robert Metz and Mark Emery. Uh, Mark, uh, Robert Metz, to this very day, is uh, the president of the party. Mark Emery ceased to be with the party in 1990. He gave up on electoral politics largely. He didn't think it was a good way to promote freedom. But um, that was the beginning, 1984. And, and that party, which they renamed Freedom Party, uh, and which took on a, a totally different, in my view, philosophy, was one that was informed primarily by Ayn Rand's uh, book, uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. That was the book that informed both Emery and Metz. And uh, in fact, it was the first Rand book that I had read. And uh, things slowly progressed from that point. Originally, I'd say for the first six years, the party was active as primarily a party trying to build a reputation through activism, stunts, media, media attention, uh, that kind of thing. From about uh, 1990 through to about uh, 99, uh, the party was uh, involved in, I would think, more outreach to various groups, uh, sort of alienated right-wingers, maybe conservative groups, uh, that kind of thing. So there were a lot of focuses on dinners, uh, bringing together people who had their own networks, uh, authors on the right, that kind of thing. And then um, in 2002, when I became uh, leader of the party, I said, you know, let's, uh, it's about time for this party to, to be perceived as a mainstream electoral alternative. So we can't be a party that goes about trying to educate the public or that tries to, you know, preach philosophy, etc. We are just a party that wants better government. We put out an election platform uh, and we uh, seek more seats in the legislature. We seek seats in the legislature so that we can control the legislative agenda. Agenda. The end. And so it's been an, it's been an evolution. And along that time, while the purposes of the party have changed, the philosophy of, of the party has evolved and become much more um, learned, I would think. And also our understanding of how philosophy relates to government decision making has evolved. And I'll take credit partly for that. I'm on the phone daily with Robert Metz, but uh, that's that's been my that's been my passion in particular. Yeah, I would I would imagine so, given your given your philosophical background there. So mm-hmm. so tell us a little bit more about about your involvement with it. What what made you decide to get involved in this level of electoral politics to begin with? Well, I think uh, you know I can remember in high school. I think I had been about one of two people who said that when they grew up they wanted to be the prime minister. You know, <laughs> and uh, I, actually at that time I don't know how deeply I wanted to be the prime minister. I did involve myself with with uh, you know high school politics or university politics, but um, I gradually was was drawn into it because of the friends I kept, and I got more and more political. And as I became more and more aware of what the government was doing, I think I probably became most aware though in nineteen. Uh, 92. And what happened was I was a graduate student at University of Western Ontario. I was in psychology, wanted to be a professor. And I was seeing that, I mean, we were at the height of the whole feminist, uh, you know, radical feminism was it had just sort of really taken a serious root in the graduate schools. It was um, a time of, at least in Ontario, but probably North America wide, uh, a time of affirmative action programs being introduced and implemented and really being taken seriously. And so 
the idea of a white male getting a job in the in the university, especially a tenured per, uh, position, just seemed uh, unlikely. Given that there were so many examples around me of these fellows who'd been, you know, they're in their seventh year of a PhD and they're not getting any nibbles. And meanwhile, people like my wife, who I met in university, would get a phone call that says, if there were a position, and we're not saying there was one, but if there were, would you be interested? And of course, if you say yes, then a job description goes up that magically match, matches your, oh, no. your, your, <laughs> no, your experience and whatnot. So I just thought, you know, I'm not interested in that. And why are we in a world where race, sex, and all that kind of stuff takes precedence over what you can do, what you know? And et cetera. And so I remember telling that to a professor. Um, she's just recently passed away, a professor of psychology. Um, uh, uh, oh my goodness, can't can't believe I'm I'm temporarily blocking on her name. Uh, 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 anyway, I'll, I'll bring it back in a second. But she introduced me to um, uh, to Freedom Party. She said, you know, if you if you've got a complaint about this whole kind of um, left wing focus on on collectives. Uh, you should really talk to Freedom Party. They might be someone up your alley. So I went to Freedom Party, Freedom Party's office, plunked down my five bucks, got a pin, and got on the mailing list. And uh, in 1999, when there was an election, they said, hey, Paul, you, you helped us campaign in the 95 election going door to door. How would you like to actually run as a candidate? And I didn't know what I was doing, but I got involved. And uh, from there on, it was just getting deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Right. Yeah, it sounds like. And so now you're the party leader. So so at least as you explained it to me before, there's sort of executive functions, which is the party president. And then but you have sort of ideological control. Is that how that? Yeah, works? I would say, yeah, the, the party basically is uh, has officers that guard the philosophy so that we have a constitution, which I wrote in um, 2002, precisely for the purpose of um, making sure that we couldn't nobody could come in, you know, and with sheer numbers change the philosophy of the party or what have you. So it's a pretty rock solid and unchangeable uh, philosophy within the constitution. But the the leader has a, you know, an electoral role of taking that philosophy and using it as the constraints upon um, pursuant to which he can or she can develop a, an electoral platform. So for example, as party leader I have free reign on whether or not to propose during an election that we, um, you know, uh, eliminate a government monopoly because that's consistent with the party philosophy. But I don't have authority as party leader to propose uh, that we impose a new tax on income because ah. the because the constitution doesn't allow me to do that. Oh, nice, yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's that's well. You're a lawyer in your in your regular day job, so I would assume you wrote that. Um, you bet. With all the lawyerly, <laughs> all the lawyerly. Uh, uh, forethought about that. Um, so, right. so tell us about the the platform of the of the Freedom Party. What are some of the main planks in the in the platform? Well, uh, they, they change from election to election. Of course, uh, the, the policies we have two uh, sort of a distinction between policy and platform. The policies are are adopted by the uh, officers of the, of the party. There are seven officers. Uh, they are sort of the philosophical um, guards, if you will. And they're the ones who put out the policies which would say things like, we're opposed to income taxation, uh, we're opposed to government monopolies on such things as healthcare and et cetera, um, we're in favor of capitalism, and so on. So these would be broad and abstract rules. And then the, the platforms would be uh, created on an election-by-election basis, and it would, would largely respond to whatever's going on at the time within Ontario. Within the platform, uh, things have evolved now to the point where we say, okay, you've got to have a position on big issues that are perennial, that never that are never uh, resolved by any of the parties that win seats. You've, you've got to have a serious and well-researched 
a position on each of those issues. Like, you know, in Ontario right now, we have a horribly badly run uh, system of electricity delivery and, and generation. We have uh, healthcare that's uh, not serving people, but that's probably more expensive than it needs to be, and it's government monopoly. We have schools that you must pay into even if your children don't attend. Um, we have uh, auto insurance that's very expensive. Those are four of the big perennial problems. Wait, auto insurance is a state uh, thing? It's, it's not state-run, or... but it's state, heavily state-regulated in terms oh. of the prices, right? Okay. And so, you know, uh, because of those um, perennial problems, we advocate things like, for example, uh, okay, if you want to have a government health care program, uh, a government health care system, that's fine, have one, but make sure that you don't have to pay into it. Make it one option and let people instead pay for um, some private uh, company's insurance plan if that's what they want to do. Same thing on education, same thing on liquor stores. Uh, the gen- my general philosophy has been people will rebel against any call to take away anything they have. So don't take away anything they have. Instead, simply get rid of the monopoly and then let the, the government monopoly fall of its own weight because it almost always will. Um, it's the non-scary way of introducing um, freedom. And it works because if you believe that socialism fails in the face of private sector competition, as I do, then... Um, why not always do that as your as your means to an end? Yeah, I, I like that idea. It's it's similar here in the U.S. Obviously, we have our postal monopoly, and obviously UPS and FedEx and so on is competing with them, but not on first class mail. And what was fascinating to me, so our post office is of course losing money hand over fist, and instead of saying, "Well, let's find a way to serve our customers better," right? Yeah. Um, their their solution is more junk mail. <laughs> Yeah, we get the same here. We yeah, and it's here. and of course, and it's it's amazing to me that people, like people, are just adamant about you know we can't destroy the post office. Like this is you know, mm-hmm. like as if it's some kind of national institution, right? Which I guess you but guys it, but, get certainly with your health with your health. Sure. Too. Oh, oh, well, hey, uh, the CBC, which is the national broadcaster, a few years back ran a national contest. Who is the great Canadian? You know, hundreds of different suggestions, and of course, the one that won was. Tommy Douglas, who is credited with pushing us into the socialized healthcare system, the government monopoly. So yeah, it's 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 regarded as the quote unquote third rail of Canadian politics here, the socialized healthcare system. But that's my experience has been that's it's a completely psychological reason for any such sacred cow. Um, people have in many cases only ever lived with whatever you know the, the the government post office or the socialized healthcare, and so it's only fair to expect that they would resist or fear a change. You know, saying, oh, let's privatize it. Let's take it away. Let's close it. You know, you're never going to win any winner, any any votes that way, except with a few fringe radicals. What you will win uh, favor uh, for is suggesting, no, no, I guarantee you, I will not privatize that thing. I will not close it on you, right? I will instead let it run itself instead of letting it be tax funded in competition, but it'll still be a government service and it'll be in competition with the private sector. So you have more choices. Uh, the prices will be better. The service will be better, just like everything else that you've experienced. Like, for example, when they allowed competition in long distance and people remember these things, they say, OK, well, if you're not going to get rid of it and it means I can still have it, then sure, if you want to create, allow other people to get into the game, I'm fine with that. It's uh, it's it's really the best way to advance freedom. It's interesting. There's a there's a similar strategy, or or basically the reverse strategy that 
the statists are using here in the U.S., particularly with healthcare. So they want to create part of Obamacare is creating these insurance exchanges, which basically they claim to be free market. But in fact, what they are is it's a whole set of, you know, massive new regulations on what's allowable insurance, health insurance and so on. And and of course, then there's going to be government plans that are competing with that. And so the goal is actually like it's just the reverse process of what you just outlined. Right. Let's like let's unlevel. Let's let's tilt the playing field you know, force, like not allow a free market and offer the government option and like basically just, you know, funnel everybody down into the government option. And then of course we'll claim the free market has failed. And so all we right. need is the government option. And it's just, it's really interesting. There's, there's obviously a big moral difference and a big political difference in terms of respecting rights to do it in one direction versus the other. And I definitely prefer your direction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and I, but I think that's great strategy, right? It's not, it's, it's, because people really do even like even with UPS and FedEx people go but how would we have first class mail without, yeah, without the I post know. office they just yeah. they really they really don't know and yeah. so if you introduce the options then they can they can evaluate they can judge for themselves and a lot of people they need this is one of my mantras lately is they need a lot of empirical evidence which is oh, yes. why like for example something like gay marriage is not just something that everybody just immediately realized, oh, we should do this. Like there needs to be this kind of empirical process where you see that, you know, this state has legalized it in this state and wow, the apocalypse hasn't come. And so maybe we should do this in our state too. That's right. So that's right. Yeah. No, no, those are, those are for big issues, right? Right. I mean, that's the only thing you can really do with a big issue is, is open up competition. That's the least scary way to make change happen and let economic forces do the work of taking out the the state, uh, you know, the state imposed one. But on, but that's not going to be enough for a small party that wants to become a big party. What what you have to do because no one cares about a small party and their views on the big issues, right? And there's there's a number of reasons. Uh, the main reason is that the electorate doesn't believe anybody can fix the big issues. They don't understand, but the electorate by and large doesn't understand the big issues. They don't understand all the various ins and outs of healthcare and electric, electrical systems. They know how to get to work, uh, punch the clock, do the, what they do for a living, come home, take the kids out to soccer and et cetera. They don't spend their time reading on nuclear versus wind power versus all this stuff. And so they don't necessarily have a, 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 an expert uh, expertise in all of these various big perennial problems. They don't believe that anybody can have an ex expertise in these problems. And they've been problems for so long through so many governments that they don't, don't really believe that the problems will ever get fixed. So the reason a, a small party or a new party has to have a position on those, on those issues nonetheless is not to impress the electorate, but rather to make sure the media knows that you're not a bunch of bumpkins who don't understand the issues. The way you oh, approach pumpkins or tinfoil hat types, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Because you know, if if all you're focused upon is I don't know, pot, seat belts, laws, and uh, I don't know, comic book um, censorship or something like that, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not going to get taken seriously. You have to have a position and a, and a well-researched position on those big issues, and you have and you're allowed because no one cares what you have to say. You can take the bold and and uh, honest position on these issues which the big established parties are afraid to do, right? So you, you end up, you know, distinguishing yourself. But where you're going to be heard by the public is on the small issues that have three, three things in, 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 um, in, well, there are three characteristics. One is the person, the general person, the, the general uh, populace can say, hey, I understand that issue. Second, they say, and I really care about that issue. 
it affects me in my daily life. And thirdly, I, you know, have a strong opinion about which way I want this to go. So, for example, uh, here in Ontario, we have uh, a liquor control board that is a monopoly on the distribution of liquor. And we also have a, a monopoly that is actually private monopoly, but it's imposed by the government. So uh, two foreign companies are given a monopoly on the sale of beer. Really bizarre for historical reasons. Those companies, is really bizarre. <laughs> yeah, the companies used to be Canadian-owned. It was Labatt's and, and Molson's, but they got purchased by foreign interests, and yet the monopoly main, uh, was maintained. So uh, here's the thing. Most people know about this history. They think it's bizarre that foreign companies should have a monopoly on the sale of beer within the province. So it's easy for the average person to say, that's stupid, right? And uh, so we can get a lot of attention by simply coming out with a policy that says, and the monopoly on on uh, beer sales. Let it be sold in corner stores. Uh, same thing on liquor. You know, a guy comes home at 2 in the morning and he wants, I don't know, well, uh, let's say a woman who wants a cooler or a guy who wants a, a cold beer out of the freezer at the liquor control board. He can't get it because they close at 8, you know, but at he gets eight. off. Yeah, close, close at 8 p.m. And that's if you're lucky. They might close at 6. On Sundays, they close at noon or 5, you wow. know, if they're open at all. And so, and don't don't even think about, you know, religious holidays or anything like that. So, you know, uh, just simply suggesting that a person who works the night shift should be able to get off at 6 in the morning, drive to the variety store, you know, the 7-Eleven the, the, the or whatever, and pick up a six-pack so he can have his beer and then sleep until 4 in the afternoon, uh, you know, that appeals to, to shift workers. That appeals to uh, people who whose timetables don't match up with the state liquor sale, seller, you know. And also, it, as another example, we have these bizarre, because it's a, a state monopoly, they can, for politically correct reasons, say, we're not going to allow liquor that comes in a bottle shaped like a naked woman or that comes in a, a bottle that's shaped like a, a, a skull or that has crazy atomic bomb labels on it with weird company names like Flying Monkeys Brewery. Even though the Flying Monkeys Brewery is, is in the province, you have to actually go to the brewery to buy their beer. I did at one point. Because the liquor control board wouldn't sell it. They didn't want to encourage, I don't know, atomic bomb explosions or something. <laughs> and, and they literally uh, would not sell this Crystal Head vodka, which is made in one of the Canadian provinces. It's uh, owned by Dan Aykroyd, you know, the, the famous comedian. And uh, he's a Canadian. And they wouldn't sell it in Ontario for who, know, who knows the reason. But I guess they didn't want kids buying vodka and drinking themselves to death. I don't know. But it comes in this <laughs> bottle that's shaped like a skull, right? So the good thing is you can get a lot of press by being a small party with talk radio audiences by taking strong like definite positions that the other established parties are afraid to take. You know, you're not going to get those established parties saying, allow crystal head vodka in the LCBO. Why? Well, because they're as politically correct as the LCBO is. And so you get to, you get to hog a perfectly common sense position and the, the talk radio folks just eat it up. It's, it's red meat for the talk radio crowd. And as a result, I mean, we had, I think, something like 10 to 18 common sense, easy to understand, personally relevant to a person's you know, day-to-day -day life. Unlike budget issues, they don't think about the budget or how to manage electricity or how to manage the healthcare system. They don't spend a minute of their day thinking about that stuff. But they do think about how am I going to get wine at 9 o'clock on a Sunday night I've got all these people coming coming over and I forgot to buy wine. Well, those people know that they want to buy it in the corner store. So they give you they give you credit, they give you props and you get you get attention. 
you know, this this reminds me of the Institute for Justice's strategy for choosing cases, right? They choose, they're, you know, they're not taking on budget issues, right? They're taking on a person's right to earn an honest living and hair braiding without, you know, getting this, this owner's cosmetology go. license. And it's similar because it's the kind of thing that the ordinary person looks at and just says, well, that's just stupid. Like, right. like it's really hard for people to defend these laws or say like monks shouldn't be able to sell caskets, right? <laughs> like, like it's exactly. just really, it's just really hard for people to, to, to stand up and, and give any kind of argument that's not just pulled out of their, out of their nether regions. And so it, it, as a result of that, like if you make this a political issue, you just, the moment people are exposed to it, you have them on, on your side, which is, right. hey, that's like, that's a winner as a political issue, even if it's not the most important thing in the world. That's right. And, and cause you, because when you're saying that you, the, oh, well, this is only one of our many planks. We have, you know, planks on healthcare and education, et cetera, but this is a little plank that, but we think it's an important plank. Well, people will like that. Right. And the other thing is the, the loyalists of the established big parties immediately say, how come my party isn't taking this position? And they call up their party and they complain and they get the, they get the door stuck in their face and they get hanged up upon and they get upset and they start thinking, you know what? I'm going to pull my money away from that party. They're just stupid. I'm going to start supporting the small party. And they do. Yeah. So, happens- so it's, it's either, either the big party starts taking your position, which is a win or the big party starts starts um losing members which is also right. a win for you guys so and, and that's part of our selection criteria right we say would a big party steal this plank from us and if the answer is no we say good <laughs> <laughs> because this means we can do more damage to their party right which is a, which is a critical thing to do by the way but yeah anyway. we'll we'll talk about that we'll talk about that in in just a minute you yeah. know it's interesting and i just want to i just want to emphasize this for people who are thinking about doing political activism there's oftentimes this push to do like big issue national level stuff and I think that that's just like you are you are really unlikely to make a to make a dent in that. I think it's it's what my husband Paul does is actually being able to do that and churn out that many op eds is in, in in the kind of platforms that he does. Like that's really really rare. And yeah. for the vast majority of people, particularly if you have really limited time or you're not sure how involved you're going to be, the more that you do something that's a smaller issue that you really care about, that you're really motivated about yourself, that's local to you, the better chance you have of, of actually really making a difference. So that's just right. And, food and for the thought, other thing, folks. Well, the other thing to keep in mind that, and you're talking about Paul, um, your husband, Paul, it, you know, when you're not involved in a political party, you are actually given more, um, access to the media because they don't feel as though they're betraying any of their political, um, colleagues or allies. So they'll let a person come on to speak about an issue, but as soon as they say, and I represent the party of the blah, 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 oh, well, then we're not interested in talking to you. Now, if the if the people who are running the station or running the TV station or running the, the newspaper say, yeah, but I really like that, you know, that um, hair braiding issue, uh, let's let these guys in to talk about that because I'm trying to push my own party into accepting that position and they don't seem to be interested in it. So I'm going to shame them a little bit. They won't, they won't get too angry with me. I'm just going to shame them a little bit and get them, get their heads in gear. And that's what happens. So the party faces the special, the the political party as an animal faces a special hurdle. And that is, um, the media have allies. They, they, they've allied themselves with one political party. And the way you get them to let, let you in on the airwaves is by coming up with an issue where they can pressure their own party, which is what they're interested in doing. Yeah, that's really yeah. that's really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that about that particular angle. Um, 
Okay, so you've talked a little bit about how you changed the party into, you know, your goal is now electoral success when you became the leader in 2002. So right. tell us tell us a little bit more a little bit more about that. You don't have any seats currently, but Correct. so that is your so that's your aim. Now that's first of all, I guess let's just talk about that as a goal because a lot of people would say, "Well, look, you have no you have no seats, you have no hope of winning seats. Why aren't you like isn't this just really a means to educate people about liberty or, or is that a legitimate goal? Talk about, talk about that and yeah. why you're not doing that. Yeah. It, it, I don't think it is a legitimate goal for a political party. I don't think it's a legitimate role uh, for a political party to educate. Um, if you, you are what you, you know, you, you'll be identified by how you walk. And if, if you portray yourself as a philosopher, you'll be seen as a philosopher. If you portray yourself as an educator, you'll be seen as an educator. If you portray yourself as a rabble rouser or an activist, you'll be seen as an activist and not as a political party. So to be regarded and, and respected as a political party, <clears throat> you have to do what people believe political parties do and only what they do. So uh, that kind of limits some of your options. And it's something, I mean, that, that belief that a political party should just do what a political party does or is believed to do, that is a switch for Freedom Party that largely came along when I uh, became the leader of the party. I didn't want the perception to be that we're anything other than a political party because you can never then make the next step into winning seats. <clears throat> so what do, you, what do you do when you're in that position? Well, I looked at the history in Canadian elections and the comings and goings of political parties, and one thing seems clear. A new, a new political party doesn't just gradually come out of nowhere and gradually win one seat and then two seats and then three seats. What normally happens is that one political party, a major one, totally implodes for some reason. Either they get exposed in a huge scandal where they're breaking the law and taking government money and it's, you know, there's criminal allegations, or they have completely alienated a large chunk of the country by taking a, let's say, an anti-South position or an anti-North position or whatever, and they just can't continue to exist as a, uh, a, a, you know, a feasible party anymore. So what happens is that the members of those parties that implode leave and either join existing parties that are similar or better, but, you know, they're palatable to them, or they form their own. That's less less common. Usually they just flood into an existing party. So if that's the case, uh, the the role of the party that wants to fill that vacuum is to create that vacuum. And the way you create the vacuum is to pick the party whose... Who's, um, members and supporters might most easily support your own party. So let's say that you believe, and I'm not saying this is necessarily true, there's probably good arguments both ways, but let's say that you believe that the Republicans or a good chunk of the Republicans would come over to your Freedom Party of Colorado. Okay, so what you need to do is to show that the Republicans of Colorado are not what they pretend constantly to be. And the good thing is conservatives always pretend to be what they're not. <laughs> they are so, so good at that, yeah. Yeah. They, they, they always pretend they're like, you know, fiscally responsible and they're going to cut spending and cut taxes. And they always do the opposite. They, they raise government revenues and they, they borrow like drunken sailors and they put the, the country into horrible, horrible messes. It happens in Canada and it happens in the States. And the reason is they all have this altruistic moral code. And yet they're trying to do they're trying to portray themselves as the very uh, antithesis of what their moral code requires them to be. Their supporters are largely Christian and, 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 and altruistic, and yet they're trying to be capitalists and et cetera. And so the, in, as a result, what they always do is they, they campaign like capitalists, but they, to, to stay in power or to win votes, they deliver like altruists. So they say, we want capitalism for the poor. 
We want, you know, we want uh, freedom for the disenfranchised. You know, they never just come out and say, you know, there are moochers and looters and we don't care about those people. We're here for the producers. They never would do that. Uh, They're ashamed of the producers. The the producers are the people they would gladly say are only producers for the purpose of making the whole country wealthier as a whole and making sure that no one falls through the cracks. I mean, here in in Ontario, we have a guy named John Tory. He was at one point recently the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. That's as right wing as the Ontario legislature gets, something called progressive. And (laughs) And he he would say that the whole purpose of he never uses free markets. He'd use the the, the slimy term free uh, enterprise, right? Because right. it doesn't you know. So he'd say the purpose of free enterprise is is not just for making money in and of itself, but to make sure that we can afford those programs that we all depend on and love so much, like healthcare and public <laughs> education. And that's the purpose. That's why we have free enterprise. And this is what this is what the conservatives always do. And yet a good chunk of the people who end up Joining conservative parties are not like that. They actually do want free markets. They actually do want capitalism. They actually do want a cut in taxes and they want a balanced budget and they want government not to be involved in government monopolies. And yet the only party they can seem to see that that has any size, and that's what they're looking for, size, are these conservatives. So what you need to do is is attack the myth that so many people uh, depend upon. They think that the the, the the uh, conservatives are the right wing party because everybody, including the left, says so. Right. And all you have to do is continually expose the people to the facts, the historical facts. In Ontario, for example, it was the conservatives that brought in a whole list of horrors, including uh, our human rights code, rent controls, the sales tax at, at the provincial level, the income tax at the provincial level, um, socialized health care. That was a conservative measure, not a liberal one. Um, and it goes on and on and on. Every socialized measure of any uh, note or, or importance was actually brought in by conservatives. And yet they're, you know, they're the ones going around saying, you left-wing pinko. You know, what? <laughs> you know, so you, you can so shame them on a constant basis that eventually the message becomes known that, wait a minute, I just heard somewhere, I keep hearing it, weren't these the, these guys the ones who introduced socialized health care and gave us the income tax and gave us the, and then suddenly they have no cred anymore and they look like they're constantly lying because they are. And so at that point, they start to implode and people start looking for alternatives. And that's happened here over the last, I'd say, 10 years in Ontario. So now, uh, I remember during the election of 2011, a fairly new and right-wing um, uh, uh, television station Similar, they they get caught. They get called Fox News North. That's I wouldn't say they are, but that's what they get called, and they're called Sun News Network. Well, they have been expressing complete dissatisfaction with all Ontario political parties, including the Progressive Conservatives. And this is a, a station that is proudly conservative, right? So what do they do? Well, they get lots of emails saying, you know, there are alternatives, and what and the one that we think you should look at is Freedom Party. So they bring me on. To say, oh my goodness, there is an alternative to socialism called called uh, conservatism, and look at what they're proposing: uh, liquor and beer in corner stores, and all those common sense policies come out in the middle of an election through a conservative voice, and suddenly, those conservative supporters are saying, "To heck with the conservative party! I'm voting for Freedom Party, or I'm giving them money." It works. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because that's certainly all. I mean all of us in in america are um who are pro-capitalist are disgusted with the republicans and yet we keep voting for the republicans now i didn't in the last election but but certainly it's like the standard and you hear on the one hand like 
far away from the election as the election is, you know, months away. It's, it's, you know, I won't vote for these bastards. They're horrible. Look at their records. And as the election gets closer and closer, it's like, well, but, but like we have to vote for them and so on. (laughs) And it's, it's a matter, I think of, of really like it, it just, it's amazing to me that people don't, they can't hang on to that view about how bad they are. And that takes, I think so much work to really undermine that view that the Republicans are the defenders of, of liberty well, yeah. and free markets and so on. And it's so that's like, that's an uphill battle. But I think if you can't, like once somebody really sees that, they're just, yeah, you've lost them. Yeah. And, and once they, once, if you can get them to the point where they think, yeah, there is no point in voting at all, unless I'm going to vote for something that actually is something I want. Right. And, you know, the, the other parties are always trying to make you believe that every day is a lifeboat scenario, right? And that therefore you have to throw, throw away your principles and just vote for the lesser of two evils. Well, it's complete falsehood. You're not in a lifeboat. There's lots of hope. There's lots of ability to fix things. And a lot of it can be fixed overnight, believe it or not, without harming anyone. And yet they don't want you to know that because in reality, we've, we've got, no matter which jurisdiction you're in, whether in the States or, or, in, in on, or in Canada, you've got whoever is benefiting from the system as it is, let's just call those people the establishment, um, they don't want anything to change. So they always want two parties who more or less stand for the same thing. So the little people can have their little election and not much will change. And um, as long as we all remember that that's what's going on, then we can say, well, I'm not playing that game. I'm, I'm going on, on voting strike, as it were, with respect to those two parties. And I'm going to just say I am going to vote because I, I think it's self, self-defeating to allow those two jokers to rape, pillage and maim the, the electorate uh, with my uh, inact- inaction. I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote on principle. And I don't necessarily know that my party is going to win, but I don't know either that they're going to lose. And the reason I don't know is that no elections are not races, despite the fact they want you to believe they are. There is no poll in the world that tells you what the election outcome is going to be. We just had that in British British Columbia last night. Everyone said the the NDP, uh, not New Democratic, they're socialists, were going to win a majority. And in fact, the Liberals won instead a majority government, the exact opposite. So people just have to have... Uh, trust in their own philosophy, in their own principles. They know they're right. And if they vote accordingly and they organize accordingly and they fund accordingly, they will succeed in the long run. I had, a, I gave a speech not too long ago uh, for Freedom Party, a Freedom Party audience. And one of the things I wanted to stress was, you know, it's, it's fine and dandy to be pro-freedom. But if you're pro-freedom and you don't vote freedom and you don't support with your finances freedom, you are a red, you are a socialist, for freedom. You are, you're trying to get something for nothing. You want freedom, but you don't want to do any of this, any of the work. You are the antithesis of what you claim to be. If you don't put your money where your mouth is, you really are. And, and what, what we all are, have been guilty of, including myself in the past is, is of being reds, as I like to call them reds (laughs) for freedom, you know? Oh yeah, I'm pro freedom, man. But you know, it's, we're in a lifeboat scenario here. Got to vote for the, for the lesser of two socialists. No, you don't. You never do. You never get ahead that way. And uh, it's completely at odds with reason as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I had been in this last election, I think it was Harry Binswanger had said basically that he had looked back to some of the stuff he wrote about Goldwater. And it was, it was like, he was basically saying, and I would now say exactly the same thing about this election. And it was all this, like, we have to, like, we need to do the stopgap measure. We need to give, like, we need, it's the buying time argument, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's I like, don't if buy you've been, that by If you've been I, buying time for 60-some years, like, yeah. you've been doing the wrong strategy, and it's time to rethink what you're doing, I think. Yeah, but the, and with all due respect to those people who, who take that position, um, the, the problem is, one, I think, of just having not spent enough time in the game, uh, literally. I mean, just not enough experience in electoral politics. And when you get into electoral politics and you start shaking those hands and you get talking to those people, you start to realize that most of these people who are very into policy, these are the ones who come out to the meetings, etc., they will never, ever even try to identify their own personal philosophy, the one that guides every decision they make. They will never identify it. They will never try to identify it. And yet the goal is somehow to get all these people into universities where they will learn the, a rational philosophy to replace the one they have. They don't even know they have one. They don't know what the word and philosophy is. And they don't care. And they don't care and to have one. Um, no. And that's, that's something, again, I think that people who are very philosophically minded, they don't realize, like, it's really important for me to have an integrated philosophy and to, to organize my life around that. But for lots of people, that's just whatever, totally yeah. not of any importance to them. Well, I, I myself, I did not know what philosophy really referred to other than sort of a folksy, you know, well, that's my philosophy, pick up beer on Tuesdays, you know, that, that'd be about as much as I knew about philosophy, even, even uh, when I graduated from university, because I didn't take any, any philosophy courses. And, um, you know, when you learn what philosophy is, and you learn how important it is, and you learn how everyone's operating on a philosophy, they just don't realize it. Uh, then you say, oh, gosh, I got to, I got to, start integrating this properly and in, in accord with the facts of reality. But I don't expect, given how out, out of touch I was and how many opportunities I had to know what philosophy was. I, you know, I was in grad school for Pete's sake, but I still didn't really know what it was. I can't expect that the electorate's going to know. And so what do I have to do? I have to uh, create a, a political option that offers up... Um, I, I like to re refer to it as like dishes served at a restaurant, that people just, they like the taste of it. They don't know why it tastes good. They don't know how it was made or what the recipe was, um, but they just know it's good and they keep coming back for it. That's the job of a political party. And because that's the job and because the people who come back for more don't necessarily know and don't necessarily care about your philosophy and wouldn't understand it if they heard it, you can be as frank and as blunt and as honest about your philosophy as you want knowing fully that no one will ever hold it against you since they're not going to listen to what you have to say anyway. <laughs> so you just need to serve up the good recipes. And why are you doing it? Because there are some people out there, people, you know, man qua man, people who like to live as human beings ought to live as dictated by the facts of reality. People who want to live a rational life, pursue their own happiness. They exist, even if they don't quite even if it's just a sort of sense of life's uh, level and they don't have an explicit philosophy, they exist and they exist in good numbers and they just need someone to vote for. And you feed them those, those meals, you give them that great menu and they will be attracted to you. Don't worry about their philosophy, but save, make sure they have an option. Uh, and, and you do that by making sure they don't feel boxed into voting for socialists who will only make their life more miserable. Philosophy is important to guide the party and its planks. It's not important for the, for the, for the party to teach people philosophy. That's, that's fascinating. And you know, it's, it's interesting to me. Oh, I'm getting an echo. Um, oh, it might be just holding this phone not close enough to my ear. Oh, there we go. Um, I'm still getting the echo. Um, let me, I'm going to hang up on you and I'm going to call you back just because I think our users can probably hear this. So should I hang up too? Um, um, it'll hang up on you and I'll call you right back. 
Um, okay. Oh, wait. Actually, I don't know that I can hang up on you specifically. Oh, wait. Here. Sorry. Okay. I'm going to hang up. I'll call you right back. Okay. Sorry about this, folks. Okay. Let us add. Here we go. Paul McKeever. Okay. Are you here? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. I'm, we're back in. Yeah. Okay. No echo. So woohoo, technical problem fixed. <laughs> um, Good. Yeah. So, so one of the things I wanted to mention about this is, is the snowball effect, right? So, you know, you are, you are doing all this work, laying all this groundwork with the Freedom Party, but it seems like it's the kind of thing that a little bit of electoral success can oftentimes really snowball because suddenly you're then a viable party. And one of the, one of the things I think about with respect to this, it's a, it's an old example, but it's, it's really compelling is just how fast Christianity spread once it, once Constantine came into, came into power and endorsed it. I mean, suddenly everybody's a Christian, right? Right. And it's because people, I mean, they see this as an advantage to them and they, they see it as like, it's somehow a live option then, and it's respectable and it's an okay thing. And, and it's no longer this fringy kind of thing to, to do. And so, so I think that that, like, there's a real, like it's, there's a real sort of hump to be gotten over. There's a real tipping point here that I, that I hope you can, you can certainly get to. Well, thank you, and I and I think we can. And and you're right. What it, I always say it is sort of get, you know getting the the blessing of the establishment, right? So here in Ontario, just just like in the United States, you know, you only get say two presidential candidates debating, whereas you might have six or seven different parties with presidential candidates, and the other guys all get sent off into a fringe group, right, uh, for a fringe debate. Uh, which, by the way, never ever if you're if you're trying to operate a political party that everyone expects to be part of the main you know, uh, main game, never participate in a fringe debate. <laughs> you will be a fringe party if you act like you belong with fringe parties and you'll end up with the, you know, the natural law carpet flying party and et cetera. It's, uh, it's, that's another thing that we've done with freedom parties since I became leader. We have uh, routinely refused to hang out with the lepers, essentially, <laughs> including especially the libertarians who will constantly pretend that they are somehow uh, pro freedom, and that they are they're, well, we're we're a lot like the Freedom Party. They're they're the exact antithesis of the Freedom Party, and they don't even understand it. It's uh, it's pretty pathetic. So yeah, so so tell us, explain to me why that's why that's your view. You know, I, that's a view I share. But but tell yeah. our tell our listeners then why you have that view of the libertarians. Well, uh, essentially, if you look at what all libertarians say about libertarianism, they all disagree about what it is. And, but they all agree that they're all together as libertarians. The essential thing that they, you'll always notice they all share is that they, they will all nod their heads if you say less government. That's the one thing they can all agree on, less government. And so you, then, and that will include ultimately the anarchists as well. That's why they're often included, even though the so-called minarchists will say, you're not really a libertarian. They'll have their little infighting about who's a libertarian and who's not. It doesn't matter. What's common to all of them is that the only thing they have in common is uh, reliably, is that they're in favor of less government. Wh- whereas, if you ask any libertarian, what do you think a government should have as evidence before it makes a decision? No answer. What do you think a government should do if uh, it's asked, you know, should we open the legislative proceedings every day with a prayer to Allah or, you know, to, to seek his guidance? Uh, the libertarians would probably say, well, you know, which, whatever they want to do, it doesn't really make much difference. Uh, every, every government will have its own view on that. And, you know, Freedom Party would say, no, this is a house of reason. 
you know, uh, this is not a place where we ask God for anything. This is a, pl- uh, a place where we let uh, logic prevail, and, and everything has to be supported by physical evidence. We're the Doubting Thomas Society, you know? Yeah, whereas uh, a lot of the libertarians say, you know, libertarianism, it has to be consistent with fundamentalist Christianity. And in fact, we should be able to base liberty on that basis. So, of course, they can't say that government should be based on rational evidence since they don't particularly believe that. Right. And they would blow their they would blow their organization apart if they took a position on such things as the existence of the supernatural or whether the government ought to take supernatural beliefs into account. They would blow their system apart if they if they said, um, you know, government should never make decisions based on faith or 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 um, biblical teachings. They would blow their their party apart if they said that uh, the government should acknowledge that every human being has as his, as his uh, central purpose, as far as the government is concerned, the pursuit of his own happiness. And they would blow apart their, their, their you know, big tent. Big tent. They have ten people. But I mean, their efforts to have a big tent would be even more blown apart if they said that, for example, um, the, the, the essence of, of government uh, intervention um, with, on the political level is to ensure that every individual's life, liberty, and property uh, isn't taken from him except where there's consent. Because, of course, there would be Christians who might say, well, you know, I don't agree with that. I'm like Ron Paul, for example, is a is a pro-lifer, you know. Right. He, and, and, states, always... and states' rights. So he, he's actually advocated for state establishment of religion. Yeah, and, you know, all he's, he's, he's masking his, his real agenda, which is that he just wants to say, well, uh, uh, because I'm opposed to this on the federal level, you can what's that got to do with anything federal versus federal versus state i mean you're just who you are you're anti-choice you're anti-life as far as i'm concerned and um and you're a libertarian so big surprise uh so no we always say when asked are you a libertarian definitely not they always say why we say because we're not anti-government we want better government we want a government that bases its decisions on reality and, and evidence. We want a, a rational governance. We want governance for the individual, and we want government to do a better job of protecting everyone's life, liberty, and property. We don't think government's the problem. We think government's the solution. And that will immediately have all the libertarians saying, oh, maybe we're not like Freedom Party after all. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and we certainly have a problem. And it, it's, you know, it's no wonder that the libertarian movement is as dominated by anarchists as it has always been. This has been one of the claims that was made in the objectivist movement recently was that it, the, you know, anarchism has gone by the wayside and it's like, what planet are you living on? Because it's, it's certainly, I think it's about 30% of libertarians are anarchists or very anarchist leaning. And it's the, the, the leading libertarians, the, the, a lot of the, 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 the leaders of the movement, including on the grassroots level are very, are are heavily you know worst of the worst kind of anarchists, and that's not right. a it's not it's not an accident, right? It's not just like some crazy thing. It's because those people within the libertarian movement are regarded as the most consistent because they want the least government, right? And so everybody else is like, well, yeah, I'm a libertarian, but you know, I I I don't think all government is bad, and they feel on the defensive because of that, and that's like that tells you something's really wrong with your with your overall. Well, and there. and you'll find out too that if you if you form a, a party for freedom for for government that defends life, liberty, and property and does it rationally and et cetera, what you will find is that those libertarians first they'll say that their party is just like yours and why don't you merge and et cetera, and then you you just respond to them saying well if we're just like you why don't you join our party and they'll all say no, and the reason they they all say no is because they know 
that a party like Freedom Party is a party that actually does take a stand on metaphysical, epistemological, and ethical issues when developing party policy. And they say, wait a minute now, I don't even believe that I exist, first of all. Secondly, um, I, I don't believe that man is capable of knowing reality, that I, you have this big, you know, respect for reason. Reason's the biggest myth in the world. And, and what's all this selfishness stuff, like this Ayn Rand cultist stuff? You know, I kind of believe that, you know, we, we owe our brother, uh, you, know, our, you know, to be his keeper. And, you know, I come from that Christian background. I'm an atheist, of course, because they they're always against everything. They're, they're never for anything. They're against and usually they're against anything that represents any kind of constraint on their behavior, whether that be God, whether it be government, whether it be the facts of reality. If there's something that says, you know, that's not something you should do, that's something they're against. And that's why you'll see so many atheists in the libertarian movement. You'll find so many, and I'm not saying they, that I, don't have, I have nothing against atheists, I'm an atheist, but I'm just saying not all atheists, as you know, are pro-reason. They're not all pro-individual. They're not all pro uh, rationality. And so um, those people will just rebel against a party that's for freedom. They will never join. They want you to join them because they want you to destroy your commitment to reality, reason, self, and consent. That's the, that's the essence of it. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I've, I say this often, like I've known some better libertarians and I've worked with them and so on. So it's not like, it's not like I hate all my libertarian friends. I don't hate you, but um, I think the libertarian movement is fundamentally like it's deeply deeply wrong and you're right that any compromise with that corrupts you it doesn't it doesn't corrupt them they don't care because they're they're a big tent they're happy to welcome everybody all, whatever the crazy views that's right i mean the leader I mean, if you want to i wish i could pull up the quote more quickly but there's the the libertarian party leader in ontario has said if we really want to be a force for freedom or for you know a successful electoral force we have to bring together Everyone, the collectivists, the anarchists, the minarchists, the greenies, the, I think, well, who don't you have? I mean, what makes, what is a libertarian if a libertarian is accepting everyone? You know, a big part of being, uh, of being a success in any movement or any, uh, any organization is recognizing that you're going to be identified not just by who you include, but by who you exclude. You know, if you will include some guy who's some kind of neo-Nazi because, well, he's for free speech so that he can distribute his anti-Semitic literature, so he's joined your party. That's a guy you want to say, sorry, pal, we're not interested in you. Really? You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you want to make a big deal out of letting everyone know that he's not welcome so that no, no one else like him will be coming along, and that will do wonders for your reputation. In the meantime, the libertarians will say, look, he's the anti-government. He's on board. Right. Well, we, we don't particularly like his anti-Semitism, but, you know, free speech and free this and free that, you know, but they've got no concept of what it means, A, to form a successful organization, or B, what even freedom means. You know, I, they literally don't. I used to call them, you know, libertarianism, freedom for dummies, except it's not. It's not even that. It's not even freedom. The other thing is that, you know, libertarians, and I'm talking about the, the, the good people you know who, who identify themselves as libertarian because they can't think of any other handle, you know, to call themselves. Maybe they're objectivists and they're calling themselves libertarian, not because they, they are anti-government, but because they just think that that's the only word that sort of is sort of for better government or what have you. Well, the thing about libertarians is they're, they're always against government, and they're talking about the thing that we have right now as though it is a government, you know? They're against the thing they have right now that goes about calling itself the government. I always say, well, technically speaking, and we should be speaking technically, is a thing that steals your money, throws you in jail for smoking a joint, and uh, tells you who you can marry and who you can't. Is that really a government? 
Or is that just an organized criminal gang that has managed to register itself and get the most number of votes? You know, that's not necessarily the criterion of a government that, you know, you just got voted into power. A government is a thing that, do, that governs, and to govern is to govern in accordance with human nature. So you, not everything gets to get called government. And because not everything gets to be called government, you're not necessarily anti-government. You're, in fact, you're always pro-government if you're pro-reason. What you're against is those, those, those crooks that we elect all the time because they've managed to get a lot of other um, beneficiaries voting for them. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I just think they're so, the libertarians, <laughs> I think we could, I think we could do a show on them. I do want to talk since we're, we're at eight o'clock. I do want to wrap up on a, on a more positive note then. So sure, let's forget, sure. let's forget about the libertarians for a minute. Yeah. Tell me, like, you seem really optimistic about politics and the future and not, I mean, look, I know a lot of, a lot of my friends who are completely depressed and think that we're all going to hell, but you don't have that vibe at all. So are you hopeful about about the future of, of politics, both in, in Canada and perhaps in America, too? I am, because <clears throat> just like, just like uh, you know, socialist economics implodes on itself, I firm, firmly believe that what we're seeing right now with voter turnout going down, down, down is the result of bad policy, bad political parties. And I think that when we get, like me, right now in Ontario, we have less than 50, fewer than 50 percent, uh, less than 50 percent of, of the voting public uh, actually coming out to vote. So, and then you split that vote three ways among the three parties that get uh, seats in the legislature, and you're having a, a party getting like 16% of the electorate voting for it. I mean, the, the government right now probably has 16% of the, uh, of the, maybe 20, 20% of the electorate who actually came out to vote. Oh, sorry, who did, who, not who came out to vote, but who, who were eligible to vote are actually supporting the governing party, 20%. So, you know, this whole idea of consent of the government is complete nonsense at that point. And once people start regarding it as such, they, A, um, recoil from voting and they don't regard government as legitimate or the thing that is getting called government as legitimate. And when you start getting out there and saying, I would propose that this be how a government behaves and they feel guilty about not voting, they'll say, hey, you know what? Um, I like this. I, I could, these guys are giving me hope for a, a government. I could actually have a government and it, it would be one that I'd be proud of. And I, and I can see it happening already. The, the media here who are pining for a government. I, I, I keep saying that, but, but I don't mean that in a, you know, redistribute the wealth sense. I mean one that defends your life, liberty, and property and does just that. There are people in the media pining for that. And since the, uh, li the liberals and the conservatives and the uh, New Democrats aren't offering that to them, uh, they feel compelled, morally compelled, to give a chance to the little guy. And that's where you'll come in if you give it a shot. You have to have faith that people with, with a podium People with money, people with just a, a vote will ultimately eventually get so sick of things, especially with a little help from you, pointing out how bad things are uh, and showing how good things can be, that they'll come over and they'll help. We've seen, we ran more candidates in the, in the 2011 election than we had ever run before, in fact, more than double. And how do we get them? Because people had faith in the organization. I don't mean faith in the religious sense. They trusted that this could happen if they just worked hard enough. You know, it's it's interesting. I saw a statistic recently. It was was a list of things that over like over 90 percent of Americans believed. And one of the things on that list was like voting like everybody should vote. Mm -hmm. And I thought that doesn't really square well with voter turnout. Right? No. And I think but I think people really do think that voting is important. But I think a lot of people think, why vote for one of these? Why vote for one of these guys, particularly 
um, if, you know, we, we, cause we really have such the two party system here in the U S. So there's just not, it's just well, so little alternative. And, and I really yeah. think that makes a difference. If people saw that there was an alternative, I think that you can, you can potentially capture those people and get them interested and get them, get them yeah, well, engaged. You may, you may face other hurdles that I don't face in Ontario. For example, I, I remember one time we were thinking about helping someone set up a freedom party USA and the, the law in your electoral system, federally anyway, is just so uh, thick and impenetrable. Our campaign it, finance laws in particular? Yeah. yeah. Like I, I, it's literally set up <laughs> to prevent the emergence of another party. And you exactly. might just find you know, that, that maybe it's not a legally feasible thing to do in a particular jurisdiction. Right. I can't speak to that. I know it is here. Uh, because, as I say, it's very easy to register a political party in Ontario nowadays. And you guys uh, get heart- tax breaks, don't you, for... For yeah. political contributions, it starts off at seventy five percent. So right. if you if you give like uh, you know a hundred dollars to to Freedom Party, you get seventy five dollars back if you're an Ontario taxpayer. That's yeah yeah. Whereas here we have to file. I mean, if I'm if I'm even going to advocate on a ballot measure, I have to file basically file my taxes every two weeks. Um, every contribution <laughs> over twenty dollars, and this is something for for those of you guys who've been following this case, like you guys know, with the Coalition for Secular Government, you know what I've had to go through it's just it's insane it's just it's really it makes it makes even you know electoral advocacy on on, on ballot measures really really difficult so right um yeah and so it might be i mean it might be in the in the u.s that a political party is not the way to go and in fact i would i would tend to argue that that's that that isn't the way to go but i think there's a lot of influencing to be done and there's a lot of of involvement really active political activism to be done by people who want to do that that that's more local, more issue focused, that could really, really have a big impact. Well, and I'm a big fan of the idea that the mouse can push the elephant if they just know where to push. And and ultimately, excuse me, ultimately, if, for example, we're successful in Ontario in pushing uh, Freedom Party into the into the legislature and uh, at one point governing, can you imagine if if you got rid of uh, socialized health care in the province of Ontario and the neighbor in New York? is suffering under Obamacare might actually say, I'm going to Ontario where I can get better healthcare cheaper and get it sooner. (laughs) You know, so all of a sudden there's pressure on the United States jurisdictions, especially the neighboring ones to compete with the neighboring Canadian uh, provinces. It happens both ways right now in Ontario. There's one political party who's uh, been influenced by, I think it's, um, I can't remember if it was Michigan or Minnesota or something like that, where they had brought in right to work recently. Now I don't I don't I don't agree with right to work because it's it's not a free association um, set of laws. It's one that gives the employee uh, a, a trump a trump card over employers as to whether or not they're a member of lawyer uh, of a, of a union. But but uh, the uh, by the way, I've, I answered a question on that uh, months ago and gave exactly the same answer. So we're on oh, the same page on that. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, and and so this this is a conservative party locally that said, you know, we would we would do this. We would so you see American policy coming over the border and influencing provincial politics here in Canada. So it goes two ways, and I'm and and especially when the government is the one doing it, I think um, you know the mouse being the Canadian one tenth the size of of the United States can nonetheless push the United States in very very uh, um, very big ways. Yeah, there's there is this sense in 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 American political arguments when like we get incensed when Canada is more free than us. <laughs> because because particularly Canada like we you guys are known for your socialized medicine. And yeah. so like when when we see that like corporate tax rates are so much lower in Canada. It's like god damn it, it's Canada. 
right? Yeah. So, yeah, so that does have an impact. Yeah. You know, I think so. And, and, you know, they, they call it the race to the bottom here. The socialists mm-hmm. call it that, you know. Um, yeah. It depends on which bottom you're talking right. about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's, it's uh, to my mind, it's a, it's a race to the good. And, and uh, what they're really rus- racing toward is the bottom of the barrel, you know, with, with their uh, weakest link gets the grease kind of thing. Well, that's a mix of metaphor. But, you know what I'm saying? It, it's always about... It's probably the same in the United States and most states, but you know we're always in a lifeboat scenario. We always have to to uh, dictate or sorry direct all of our our uh, political uh, efforts at saving the poor, saving the unhealthy, saving the saving, saving, saving. Everybody's in a in a in a lifeboat. Never is it the case with these parties that are in the legislature where they say, you know, we've got to break down barriers to trade. We've got to break down the things that are causing people to get robbed or to get raped or whatever. They never focus on those things. Instead, they focus on how do we take money from the guy who's succeeding and give it to the person who's not. And I'm not telling anything not that your listenership doesn't already know. It's just that the, 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 philosoph- the philosophical position, which is implicit in all of that, is that lifeboat, lifeboat scenario. They want you always to be in the lifeboat so that you will abandon your philosophy feel that it's not applicable and it's always applicable. Yeah. And it really is amazing to me when I go out and talk to regular people, how, how receptive they are to good ideas and receptive they are to the idea of governing based on facts and, you know, let's say eliminating government programs if they've been shown not to be effective. And look, we, you know, we need somebody who's not a socialist and not a crazy religious right person, right? We need Mm -hmm. somebody who's, who's, you know, pro-free market and pro-individual liberty, right? Well, and it's a real danger. I mean, right now, in Ontario especially, but probably right across North America, multiculturalism, as I would say, as Peter Schwartz would describe it, okay, that, that cultural Marxism, um, that is really the prevailing strategy right now. If you want to see a particularly galling example of it in Ontario, uh, about a year, well, about three or four years ago now, the premier of the province said, uh, well, we, we should rethink this idea of making the Lord's Prayer part of the official uh, opening ceremony of the legislature every day, which it was, right? And it still is. He, but we should rethink that. And, well, of course, there was just a deluge of emails saying, no, you must keep the Lord's Prayer as part of the official opening ceremony. These are all the theocrats, of course, who want you know, one country under God or whatever. And so naturally he said, no, no, that's not what I meant. I meant we need something that's you know, inclusive of more religion. So he changed his position, he pretended he meant something more inclusive. Right now, then, we have something like 11 religious, uh, 11 religions whose prayers are said in the legislature of the part of the official opening, including prayers to Allah, prayers to, I don't know, Buddha, prayers to, so every day they say the Lord's Prayer plus a rotating one of the others. And it's ridiculous. And of course, every one of those prayers says, you know, uh, we recognize you as the one true God, the, you know, the only, you know, the only light, the way to the path to righteousness and all this kind of stuff. Well, wait a minute. I thought the other guy was the one true God, and the, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, it's just a complete farce. And, and the worst part about it is it reifies the notion that legislators should be taking their, their cue from God which plays right into the whole Islamist playbook, the whole Sharia law playbook, that the purpose of the legislature is to reflect the will of God, and that therefore Sharia should be the only law that exists in the country, which, by the way, has been a big part of Freedom Party in recent years. 
uh, be just being cognizant of the role of religion in so many, a growing role of religion in so many government-run facilities. They, for example, are putting prayer rooms in public schools on on the count uh, allegedly so that Muslim children don't have to leave the school, cross the street, and go to a, a mosque or what have you to go pray five times a day. So they literally are even in a Catholic school will be we're setting up prayer rooms for Muslims. Wow. Um, just ridiculous, ridiculous accommodation policy, all founded on the idea that there's no philosophy any better or worse than any other, and therefore no religion any better or worse than any other. Everything's equally worthless and, and worthful. Uh, who are we to judge? And that all works out really well for the theocrats. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, and so if, you know, if there's going to be a prayer, I would suggest actually my traditional Thanksgiving prayer. It's actually, I learned this in our Front Range Objectivism group, which is, thank God we don't have to pray. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's yeah. excellent. <laughs> okay, well, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you all for listening. And thank you, Paul, for a fantastic discussion of advancing liberty via a political party. Thank Folks, you for the opportunity. Oh, so glad to have you. Folks, with every episode of Philosophy in Action Radio, we bring, we bring you ideas that engage the mind and help you live better. Plus, we introduce thousands of other listeners to the principles they need to live virtuous, happy, and free lives. I think that's hugely important, and I couldn't do it without your support. So if you do want to support my work, just go to philosophyinaction.com slash support. Also, join Greg Perkins and me for Sunday morning's broadcast of Philosophy in Action Radio. We have four meaty questions on tap. One, does individualism imply atomism and social isolation? Two, how can I make my boss more communicative? Three, should disabled kids be kept out of the public eye? And four, are arranged marriages legally and socially valid? So it's going to be an odd mix of questions there. Uh, for the full questions and other details on that and other upcoming shows, visit philosophyinaction.com slash upcoming. And also on philosophyinaction.com, you can peruse the show archives, connect with us on social media, and read the blog. And also don't forget to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash philosophyinaction. So I am Dr. Diana Shea, Philosophy in Action. Thank you, everybody. Good night.